1: In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: As a kid, having to think about money and having to recognize That there is this thing out there and things could go very badly. It's remarkably unsettling. And I've talked to people who've grown up in well-off circumstances. It's not like they don't know money doesn't exist, obviously. You know, they get an allowance, they get stuff. But there's something that happens when you have the recognition that you're not growing up in this sort of secure environment. Things are fragile. Things can fall apart.
3: Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. A couple months ago, I did an episode with the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky. Uh, It's one of my favorite episodes. A lot of you have told me it's one of yours. And a key part of that episode was the idea that stress and living in the constant state of stress that is living in poverty is, it's like a psychological disease. It's like a psychological handicap. It weakens your cognitive capacity. It weakens the way you are able to plan for the future and to manage your own situations. And and I think this is a really important thing to keep exploring. Uh, we, We have a society where we're so quick to judge people in terms of how they did on their tests or how they did in school or what decisions they made and the idea that we're not all starting from the same place that some of us are under loads that others are not. It uh, doesn't enter into the calculus nearly often enough. So it's why for a while I wanted to bring Sendhil Mullinathan onto the show. Um, there's not a great way to describe him except that he's like a genius, like a literal genius. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. He, he's an economist at the Chicago Booth School of Business. He has written on I mean, he has done papers that are foundational in like everything. Um, we talk about this a bit on the show, but the the range of topics he has actually covered is, is genuinely remarkable. And in addition to that, he's written uh, some tremendous books. But in particular, the one I want to talk about here is Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much, which he co-wrote alongside Elder Shafir. And his work here is... It's really, really interesting because it is about how being in a position of scarcity, which we talk primarily here about poverty, but it can happen for other reasons because you're dieting or you're too busy. Um, how it changes the brain, how it reduces cognitive capacity. And and he, in a way, I really appreciate is willing to follow the implications of, of what he says all the way to their end. And they're quite they're quite radical. If you thought about our society and you thought about how we design social policy and how we judge other people and you take this into account, I think it should change your your perspective quite deeply. Um, he's also just a brilliant, funny, fun guy to talk to. I, I I expected this conversation to be smart. I did not really expect it to be fun, um, but it really was like from the first moments of it. And, and I think you'll hear that in here. Uh, we sat down and he was immediately like, you know, I've been thinking <laughs> as soon as I sat with him, was, I've been thinking about how much worse it is to talk uh, any way out of person. Um, he's the kind of guy you sit down and before you barely even say hi, he's off on an interesting topic. So I started uh, before too much got left on the cutting room floor, as you'll hear just in a sec. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, Ezra show at Vox.com. But please enjoy what's a really great conversation with Sandeel Mullinathan. Sandeel Mullinathan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. I just stopped our pre-show chit chat because you brought up something really interesting about how it is completely different to talk in person than than far. So tell me why you're thinking about this.
2: You know, I have a collaborator I work a lot with, and he's at Berkeley, and I'm at um, Chicago. And... You know, we've tried lots of things to like make sure we get like as much connectivity as possible. But it's just nothing like being there in person. Like you can go and spend a day together in person and you're like, how is this more productive than hours? And I mean, 5x productivity. And I just can't, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm curious. Do you have an idea of why you think there's such a big difference in not just productivity? I should add one other thing. Just
3: joy. The, the joy factor is totally different. I've been, I initially was not very heavy and we're doing this remote, I should say, um, for the audience, but I was not very insistent on doing things in person. and I've moved more towards it when I can because there's so much. But so here's how I think about it. And I think about it because I've moved from primarily writing and, and now I have presence on all these social media platforms like Twitter and then up to podcasting and I've done TV. and And I've been really struck how different we all are in these different mediums. And the way I've come to think of it is that there's like a pipe of information. And every time you become more attenuated from the other person, like the pipe narrows. So the amount of information I get sitting across from you, like watching your micro expressions and seeing like the set of your shoulders and just like kind of feeling the energy in the room, that's actually a lot of information. If you move on to video chat, I don't get much of that at all. There's a little bit of a lag, too. I notice this all the time on here. I actually just began talking when you weren't finished. Um, I thought you were, but I had started too early, which I wouldn't have done if you were here. And then it's you keep going down to writing, down to Twitter, you just you lose so much of the information about the context and the way somebody is saying something. Um, and I don't think we've found a way to 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 either reopen that pipe. But the other thing that we haven't really found a way to do is create new forms of information that is helpful. Like almost the only one I can think of is emoji.
2: Yeah, I love that one because there's no substitute for real life. I mean, there's no real life substitute for the emoji. And I want to pick up one thing you said, the interruption part. That one is so central. Like when you're in person, the fluidity of conversation is awesome because I actually know what's a good interruption. You know, like Like I think people imagine good conversations. Oh, you let one person speak, then the other goes. But actually, the best conversations have lots of productive interruptions. Like, oh no, I had this idea, but and we do that. Like, if you're even modestly astute, you know when to do that based on, as you said, all of these cues on you know your face, your body language. You know, is Ezra on a roll? Should I stop him? I don't even think that consciously. I just kind of know it. Whereas as we are right now, distant, I can't even see you. Yeah, you're right. I wouldn't. You know, I'm not able to do that. And then. And then the conversation doesn't have as much of a chance to get going. And so I I think that one's a good one. I I have another one, which I'll add to your your sort of pipe of information one, which I like. Um, What we decide to talk about is also totally changed. So like, not just what makes it through the pipe, but what you decide to put in the pipe. Like, if you and I have an hour and a half call, you know, we're gonna talk about the stuff that needs to get talked about. If we have an hour and a half in person, Think of all of the random stuff we'll talk about. You know, you chit-chat, chit, like, oh yeah, what bar are you eating? How did you get that bar? How did you choose it? Pointless things. But so much of the most interesting ideas come from the sort of the graveyard of the pointless, where you're like, yeah, this wasn't gonna be an interesting thing, I'm just chit-chatting. And you're like, oh, it went somewhere cool. And you just don't have that opportunity for the random stuff that might turn into something.
3: But also rapport comes from the. I like the way you put that the the graveyard of the pointless. I mean, not to make myself sound too manipulative, but the reason when you began talking about this that I stopped us and, and moved us into the show, rather than jumping into I have a million things to ask you about, is that it's a lot harder to build rapport remotely. And it doesn't really come from me querying you about your work. Yeah. So if there's something you're just thinking about that we can riff on for a little bit, everything else we talk about is going to be more comfortable. Like you're like this is a different conversation than if I just began by being like, "Tell me about scarcity." <laughs> and it's really hard to do that from afar. Um, you you, you have to do it very consciously. It's something that I've I, I've learned over the time of hosting the show that I have to build in time and 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 look for opportunities. To have, I don't want to call it pointless. I think it's an interesting conversation, but you you have to explicitly look for like rapport oriented conversation, not just information oriented conversation. Trying to be too efficient about the conversation loses more than you think.
2: I love that. Yeah, my pointless wasn't the right phrase. Your point about efficiency, functional like, do, does this conversation have an ends? Like, okay, we're trying to get this question answered, or are we kind of strolling and wandering together? And I think the metaphor of strolling and wandering, I mean, that's what makes a great conversation, right? You wander, but actually you get places. You get places that are interesting.
3: Yeah, and you also get into a different space. I mean, something that I think a lot about is a different answer somebody will give depending on how they're feeling in the conversation. If your defenses are up and you're careful and, you know, you felt peppered by somewhat hostile questions... You're going to give a very different answer to the same question than if you're comfortable uh, and, and the same is true for me i mean thinking about what kind of emotional space everybody's supposed to be in do you want to be reflective do you want to be efficient i mean is this like a 15 minute stand up meeting versus a amusing is is really important the other thing that, that i just think about in the space that i've noticed is i can do and will do longer conversations in person than remote and the closest i can come to a reason for that is that it takes less attentional resources for me to be in person with someone. By the end of an hour or 90 minutes of doing a remote interview, I'm pretty tired. Like it's hard to focus all of that attention on the microphone. It's a lot easier and more natural to focus that attention on a person there in front of you. I love it.
2: Oh, I love it. I don't know why. Yeah, no, and it's related to the scarcity stuff. So we'll come back to that in one second, but I wanna add one more thing along the same line, which is we've been like in person versus, you know, on the phone or other media. In person, if you went to the other extreme, one of the, I don't know if, if you've taken road trips, but I love road trips. And I talked to this anthropologist once who had a nice theory of what's so wonderful about road trips. And I mean, road trips with someone else. So there you are in the car. And she said, what makes road trips so awesome is that the two of you were talking, but you're not looking at each other. You're looking at a shared scene that's kind of interesting and evolving. And she said, that creates a different kind of conversation because it allows you to open up. It's kind of hard to say certain things when someone's looking at you, but it's easier to kind of, you know, talk about a complicated relationship or just wherever the conversation goes. And once she said that, I realized it's actually interesting. Even friends that I've, you know, I'm very close to, I never get the kind of open conversation as I do when we're on a road trip. And that's also something. Interesting. It's related to your point of what are you attending to? What are you looking at? And what does that sort of provoke in you?
3: Yeah, there's something about letting your some part of your attention rest somewhere else that allows you to, to be more open. So I, I have two quick anecdotes on this. One is that I know parents of teenagers who, when they want to get their teenager to talk to them, will take them in the car, that it's easier for their teenager to talk to them, not looking directly at them. And Somewhat similarly, when I was a teenager, um, one of my best friends and I uh, in in Brazil, so my my family's Brazilian, uh, there's something called pateca. And it's like a little like feathered um, sack, bean bean bag, something. You kind of hit it back and forth with your hand. It's basically like playing catch, but with a a little weighted feather anchor. I don't know how to describe this. (laughs) Um, And we just sit there talking, playing pateca for a really long time. And the point was not the pateca, the point was like that the pateca loosened the talking. Before you have beer, um, <laughs> before you have the, before you have the opportunity of doing that by getting drunk, um, it's a you know I found you could do you could kind of ease the conversation by by doing something else. I love that.
2: That's really awesome. I, I also like the the parenting tip we've gotten out of this. I don't have kids, but I'm sure
3: I can tell other people who do have kids what to do with their kids now. <laughs> so so let's actually use that as a bridge into some of the other conversational pieces here. Um. So I was doing, I wanted to have this conversation largely around your work on, on scarcity. But I was, when I was looking into your work, you've done research on not just scarcity, but hedge fund, profits, CEO pay, racial discrimination, methodological problems of difference in differences, estimates, media bias, cigarette taxes, energy policy, corruption in Indian governance. And I could do this for a while. What's the through line in your work to you? I just love,
2: love, love, love thinking. And I love exploring. So I am never going to, you know, climb Mount Everest or these are not, I'm not that kind of adventurous person. And most of those places are also explored. But in the intellectual space, the ability to go to a whole new place, a place no one's been, that's just so exciting. And so such a, like, I, I, you know, I also love desserts. I, I told one of my grad students, I said, you know, I love biting into an amazing chocolate chip cookie, like Levan Bakery has this amazing, I love that. But when you have a new idea, it's like even more hedonically pleasurable. I don't mean just intellectually. I mean, at the same primitive level, it just feels like pleasure. And so for me, I end up wandering and from areas because I, 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 enjoy being in new spaces where no one is, sort of being in the wilderness. Like now, I'm doing stuff in computational medicine. And having to go into these whole new areas means I get to learn, which I love, and I get to
3: go in the woods where no one is. And you're like,
2: you know. But you're either
3: underselling or overselling yourself here. Because what's (laughs) crazy about the diversity of things you work on is there are places where lots of people are. I mean, you've done essential work in racial discrimination. You've done central work um, in cigarette taxes. People were here. There are epidemiologists or people who study race. How do you decide when you have something to bring to a topic, or 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 how do you look at the woods and decide nobody's in there?
2: Yeah, it's a great point. It's like an area that looks crowded by some people's assessment, and you're like, oh, that's really you know. So a uh, great, great, and good calling me out. I, uh, I, I think. One thing that's really, really important for me is, so here, here's an example. You know, behavioral economics, uh, you know, which Richard Thaler and many others have really pioneered. It was one of the early fields that I worked in and, and, I, and I really like Richard. And he said something which really made a lasting impression on me. So behavioral economists are the group of people who try to argue that rational economists had it all wrong, that their assumptions about how humans behave, you know, was just completely faulty. And Taylor said to me, you know, to be a great behavioral economist, you have to be a really great rational economist because to see what's wrong in something, you really have to understand it. And that was very helpful for me because I think what I look for is blind spots in people's understanding of a problem. And to get that, I have to understand the way they understand it right now. So I think I find white space in areas to work in by saying, how do people think about this thing right now? Okay, I think I understand how they think about it. Well, if you're thinking about it that way, what's your blind spot? And then that usually opens up space. And so as an example in the work on poverty, where it's it's, it's, actually, you mentioned cigarette taxes, I'll give you that as an example. I think part of what felt to me there was there was a whole discussion very well thought out exceptional discussion of like, well, what does cigarette taxes do? What does it do to smokers? Does it reduce smoking? Does it? And what's so interesting about that literature was that there was a blind spot on what is the experience of being a smoker? What does that mean? Well, psychology tells us, some people just like smoking, that's fine. Some people are struggling to quit. So I was like, well, if I put myself in the shoes of that person, how would I view a cigarette tax? Well, you know, I'd be annoyed because now this thing costs more, but maybe I'd be kind of happy because I'd be like, hey, maybe this will help me quit. And even if I'm not happy in the moment necessarily, I might be happy a few months later if it does help me quit. So then when John Gruber and I looked into the issue, you go to quit lines. And in fact, when cigarette tax legislation is passed, there's a spike in call to quit lines. And you're like, oh, well, it was anecdotal, but that was intriguing. And you're like, oh, that's kind of, maybe we, maybe we have a way to think about this problem that's, if not a blind spot, is a relative blind spot to the people who are currently working on it where they're working with data and they're kind of treating this like, will demand go up, demand go down. And then once we think we've got a blind spot, we say, well, how would we show this in the data as opposed to through anecdote? And we'd say, wouldn't it be funny if cigarette smokers actually became happier The people we are taxing are actually happier. And so then that starts us off on that journey. And I think a lot of my thought process is of that type that to find a new thing, I
3: try to find a blind spot in the predominant way that people are currently thinking. So that gives me half of it, I think. So if you think about what you've got as like an explore exploit process, Uh I think I understand your exploit, which is you have a toolkit of looking for blind spots, right? You have a toolkit of behavioral economics. And certain kind of methodological innovations, and so you can look at a situation and recognize that maybe there's a different way of looking at it. But what is your explore? Because what you said there was to do this kind of work, you need to know you need to know the topic backwards and forwards. You've got too many topics here <laughs> to know not just them, but all the ones you would have had to reject as not having the the right characteristics to to do the work backwards and forwards. so how are you how are you finding these places? So uh, let
2: me give you an answer. Let's see if I've, I've, I mean, this may be Zeno's paradox. I've cut it in half. Let's try to cut it in half again, and we'll just keep going until we run out of tape. Um, The, another, by the way, I I don't have great answers to you. So I love that I'm going to, we're going to figure this out together. So one answer as I listen to you comes up to me is that I realized a little while back, I mean, it's actually quite some years ago that I genuinely enjoy learning And that I should stop thinking of learning as work. That, in other words, it is actually a pleasurable activity. And there's so much of life which is about construal, which is what do you construe as work and effort? Oh, to do this, I have to learn this other thing. No, I don't, I mean, this is the thing I enjoy. I enjoy learning new things. And I think most people are like me. I actually think for most people, especially people who've sort of, gotten interested in in living the life of the mind in any way, shape, or form. I think they love learning new things. So when you put it in that respect, for me, it's been all exploration when I'm not doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. I just love reading things from different places. I don't I don't view it as, a, oh, I need to go check a mark. And I also license myself. If something gets boring, I say, i oh, us move on. I don't have to read this article. Like I don't set myself things where I say, now I'm going to learn X and I'm just going to sit down because then that becomes tedious. You know? For your explore part, I just make sure I wander and explore a lot without any judgment. And you'd be amazed when you do that you know, relentlessly, but because it's fun, how you just quickly get pulled in and actually end up becoming experts in things because your own passion pulls you in. Be a,
3: a little specific for me about where you're looking. So do you, I mean, do you just read the news and you've got you got kind of an eye on it? Or do you like like to go to the bookstore and pick up random stuff? Or is it a, a particular way of trolling NBER?
2: Yeah, no. Have you ever played this Wikipedia games where you, I'm sure you have implicitly, where you're reading a thing, you see a point, you click that link, you go further down, you go further down, and then you're like in this maze of Wikipedia? So for me, yeah. I, I think- That type of wandering where you put yourself in a rich environment and the web is awesome. The problem is the web is full of these truly pointless rat holes. So you gotta, you know, I gotta make sure I don't end up at ESPN too often, but like if I just put myself in this space and all of the places you described are awesome, whether it's NBER, whether it's archive, which has got a bunch of interesting papers, or if you go to some of these awesome sites that have cool latest studies, but it's really not where you start but it's like following the path. So I might read. What's an example? I might. I'm reading. I was reading some stuff on intermittent fasting, and how that's useful. And I said, "I'm doing intermittent fasting."
3: Oh, you are! Oh, now yeah. now we have another topic. I I, I I I like intermittent fasting a lot.
2: Yeah, it was so The most amazing thing about intermittent fasting is what you learn about your appetite.
3: No, like. Yeah, I although it made me concerned when I was reading the part in scarcity that said when you're not eating, you become dumber. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you can introspect about whether it's happening to you. I've found with intermittent fasting, I'm not thinking about food, which was the most impressive thing to me. That if I don't- What is
3: your, what is your fasting cycle?
2: I'm only just started, but one thing I'm trying is I'm trying not to eat anything until you know, 2 p.m. or even later. And it's astonishing to me that if I don't eat something, I'm not hungry. Whereas if I ate something in the morning, I'm hungry. And that feedback. Oh, that's
3: totally true for me. That's why it works for me.
2: But isn't that astonishing? If I said to somebody, "The best way not to be hungry is don't eat," they'd be like, "What?"
3: Yeah, it's a. It it gives you some very different uh, senses of what is happening in your own appetite and body, and in a word, I know it's become very trendy. But I'm somebody who has kind of dieted on and off from being very young. I was very heavy when I was younger, um, and. I have found it much easier to control my eating with just hard rules than to try to do any kind of portion control or this, but not that. If I'm just not eating until a certain part of the day, like, that's fine. Like, I I can kind of work within that constraint. The idea that I'm going to exercise self-control at a table, it is not a possible thing for me.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is that last point, which I really got out of thinking about the scarcity stuff shows up for me everywhere that rules are cognitively so much easier than discretion. Like, uh, for example, I go to the gym, but I actually find it's much easier to go to the gym every day than three days a week. Because I get up in the morning and I don't I don't think, is this the right day to go to the gym? Which is cognitively very tough, like as you, now everything is like I'm a trade off, is today the right day, and then if you fail, you feel bad. Whereas, I don't know, I get up, I brush my teeth, I go to the gym. So. It's a different kind of self control. Just stick to the rule. But it isn't that taxing, constantly thinking about it, which I think portion control, calories, similar, like, I don't know, is this donut worth it? What am I giving up? All of that sort of trade-offs and and non-rule based
3: thinking. That is just so taxing. That that, that point about the gym has interesting to me. I've never I've never thought about doing that or trying that. Although um I cannot say I, I am doing intermittent fasting. Gym is not something that's been working out recently. So <laughs> maybe I need to do something like that.
2: Yeah. One thing I try it If every day is too much, I'd even try, I go Saturday and Sunday morning for a jog. That's it. Or whatever it is that you like to do. And that's,
3: and I don't violate that rule. The one that's killed me. So we had a a baby recently and um, it just doesn't allow me to schedule anymore. And so much of the way I did rule-based scheduling, which was important for me, was just like, okay, these days I go to the gym at this time. And that means like I'm gonna be up at seven. That means I or six or whatever it might have been. And so I'll go to sleep at this time. And because the baby doesn't care, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like my idea was I'd go to the gym at seven this morning. Um, that's just not how my sleeping worked out last night. And so like, you know, I figure, figure at some point in the future it'll it'll normalize, but um, but but they, years, being taken away be from the ability to be rule-based has actually been hard. I do think that's actually a good drive into scarcity because that idea of what happens to you when you can't control your environment and how does that change your ability to to optimize your life seems to me to be important here. So can you define scarcity for me in the way you're using it in, in your work in the book? So in the book, what um, Eldar and I had been um,
2: trying to concentrate on is not the objective meaning of the word scarcity, you know, there's only a finite amount of things. But that subjective sense of having too little. And when we move to the subjective, I think we can all see the experience of it. For example, you've always had 24 hours in a day, but you've had periods where you felt time was short and periods where you felt, you know, time was fine. Like I have I have time to do what I you know, plenty of time. So it's important to just start by realizing that there is a subjective notion which is distinct from the objective notion. Or you know, money is the most extreme example. I'm lucky enough right now in my life to have more than enough money. Now that's not an objective thing in the sense that there are plenty of people with my income who might be feeling like, oh my God, I really need this more for whatever reason. But for me, I feel fine and one way that shows up is that i don't really think about money and i think similar things are true about time and true about calories that it's that there's this link between the feeling of having too little of something and the feeling of having to or in fact you know obsessively almost thinking about the thing and that's really what i think we meant by scarcity
3: do you think some people are more tuned in the way they experience the world to experience scarcity holding circumstances constant and i'm thinking here like i tend to be a more obsessive looping thinker i'll kind of fixate on something um and then there are people in my life who are really good at compartmentalizing they'll they'll put something down and and almost to a fault not worry about it <laughs> and is Would one of us be more likely to have the kinds of obsessive scarcity effects that, that you're talking about? Is that, when you talk about the subjective experience, is that the thing that you can't stop thinking about it? Yeah, let me break it into two parts. Let me, I, I, I like the way you put it.
2: So the first part I would put it is, is there the feeling that you have too little, too little of something that then necessitates that you must think about that thing? Like if I feel I've got very little time, now I got to think about time. Now I gotta think about what to do with it. But then there's a second part, which is, well, what happens when you start thinking about a thing that you feel you have too little of? And one of the things that we draw out, that we hypothesize is that what happens when you start thinking about it is, it's not yours to think, you don't decide when to think about it. It starts intruding on you. So in some sense, the two people you describe, they may have the same experience of having their mind go to, oh my God, um, why am I on this call? I've got all these other things to do and, and I'm sitting here on this phone call. They may have the same thought, but the two people you describe might have a, a different capacity to respond to that thought. I'm like you, so you or I might not be able to suppress that thought and keep like it keep intruding with us and that it keep taxing us. Someone more evolved or capable might be able to say, I can't do anything about that right now. I'm not going to think about it. And I always marvel at such people. I think they're rare, by the way. I think even people who, who say they're going to do that, I if you look at them, you can see they're a little bit stewing. But I do think that's both uh, some people are born with it and a skill of sorts. It's a, it's a skill I do think that can be learned.
3: Um, but I, I think it's one that's hard learned. So you have a line in the book that I think makes the underlying mechanism here very clear. And I think a lot of people will, will relate to it. I certainly did when I read it which is that what scarcity does to our mental processor is that by constantly loading the mind with other processes, it leaves less mind for the task at hand. Can you talk a bit about bandwidth and this idea that you're, there's basically a finite amount of mind and the more something is obsessing you because you don't have enough of it, the less mind there is for the rest of what you might need to think about?
2: Yeah, I'll give an example with this conversation right now. Like I'm here and because I really, you know, I love your work and I want this conversation to go well. I kind of, based on my work with scarcity, I said, you know what I don't want to go into? I don't want to go into that conversation with other things that might pull at it. For example, if I had a deadline this evening, what would this conversation be like? Yeah, I'd be talking with you. But every five minutes, something would come to mind like, oh man, you know, that thing and the thing that's due today, maybe I should change that. Or will I have enough to finish this other part? Now, what does that do? That's incredibly interruptive. It's not just the 10 seconds that were lost. It's my complete inability to give continuous cognitive resources to you and this conversation. And that interruptive processes have the effect of me, you, you would get off this call if that was happening to me and say, that guy was really, Now you can fill in your biggest, you know, pejorative adjective, whatever you would use, in part because I wasn't really all there. It's as if I had less mind. And I think that is an experience I've had many times in my own life. And that experience is the feeling of simply just not having as much to give. And in part, because some of it is constantly being tugged away. There's a a metaphor that we use in the book, which I also has helped me, which is the metaphor of sort of Imagine as we were talking, someone was speaking into your ear every once in a while. That that would be super distracting. Like that that would really, we would all understand you wouldn't be as good at this task. If if you imagined even a great expert like say Gary Kasparov playing chess and in Kasparov's ear every once in a while, someone would like whisper random things that, that distracted him, he's obviously going to lose a lot of chess capacity. And I think instead of having someone else whisper in our ears, what I think scarcity and other things like it do is it gets our own minds to whisper in our heads. So first,
3: thank you for the embedded compliment there. I really appreciate it. Something that that makes me think about is, so my version of this, I wish I were as good as you are at sort of not having the deadlines um, on (laughs) on the day of the podcast, but I try before um, a podcast to not look at my email or Twitter for about an hour before the show. Because I'm probably going to see something in one of those places that is either going to piss me off or just distract me. There's some news thing happening. You know, Joe Biden just said a thing. And, you know, should I be writing on it later? So I try to do that Um, because I do like that feeling of somebody always like popping up in your head and yelling at you um, is terrible. But it makes me wonder, how do you distinguish between just scarcity? Because that's not a condition of scarcity and just distraction or as scarcity as you are framing it here, simply a subcategory of distraction? Yeah, I would think of it as, in the, in the
2: frame we have right now, it's a subcategory in the sense that it produces this effect because it's harnessing something that we're used to. Like, let's use something not like scarcity. I like your Twitter example. If you went onto Twitter and somebody said something super hurtful, you know, it's just human. You're just gonna like keep stewing on that. Like, oh, but he said I was blocked, you know? And that, that's not scarcity. But the cognitive apparatus there is very similar. It's that there's a part of your mind, which is the higher order mind, which is trying to do things. There's another part of your mind, which is actually trying to interrupt the higher order mind. It's sole purpose is interruption. And if you think about it, that's a good thing. So for example, that's the part of your brain, which when it notices something out of the corner of your eyes says, hey, look what's over here. So it serves a valuable purpose and it's a primitive mechanism more basic than scarcity it, it's the mechanism that lets you remember your mom's birthday cuz you know if it's not written down anywhere it's just it's this part of your mind that can interrupt things and say hey here's something bubbled up from other parts of the brain but that part of the brain i think whether it's twitter or scarcity i think it is it can be very disruptive and so for me i view the scarcity work as kind of Sitting subservient to that particular force, which is, I think, much more basic. And to your point, one example that I've, I'm, I wax and wane. I don't want to pretend I'm good at this, but there are times when I'm great, times when I'm terrible. Is that I found that the way I use empty two, three minute periods is really terrible. Like instead of using that as a time to like you know reflect or be bored. I actually use it as a time to expose myself to these type of cues and primes that are going to destroy the time after. Like if I'm just sitting- Yes, yes, I cannot I cannot agree with this more. It's, it's amazing, <laughs> right? Thing. Like if I was sitting here before this call,
3: like I was like, hmm,
2: I have a few minutes
3: and it took all my effort not to look at email.
2: Because I knew if not I looked Not to
3: be at- too TMI about this, but there's this quality where you're like, I'm going to go to the bathroom, but maybe I could go to the bathroom and get myself <laughs> upset for later. <laughs> That's exactly. It's a a crazy way to act. Yeah, and it's
2: such a silly thing. But it's if if the the days I've done this, it's shocking how much more intellectual capacity I have for any task at hand. Where I just say, I'm not going to use dead time to expose myself to these things that have some probability of like having lasting consequences, whether it's Twitter or whether it's email. The days that I've just committed to that, and ultimately. It's not a useful use of that time anyway, because it's too short. But the days I've done that, man, I am so much more on and happier and just like, it's just a
1: better day. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
4: Support for the Gray Area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. Borough.com slash box.
3: You do a lot of work in the book uh, about the way in which poverty, a feeling and also a reality of not enough financial resources, or even just feeling financially strapped, creates these processes of scarcity. And you have this one study where you experimentally show that if you prime people to think, if you prime people who don't have that much money to think about financial emergency they will lose the equivalent of 13 or 14 IQ points um, in their their capacity on subsequent tasks. Can you talk about that experiment a little bit?
2: Yeah, and let me talk about a version of that one that I find kind of even moved me more where we had looked at sugarcane farmers and the sort of month before, so sugarcane is an amazing crop because it grows about roughly a year in the area we're looking at. So you kind of do your work, you wait, and you don't get paid for a year. So basically, you get your entire income all at once. And so you can, I don't know about you, but I can imagine what my life would be like if I got all my income a, a year at once. I'd spend too much early on. And these were j- just, these were sugarcane farmers, if I remember correctly, in Indonesia? Uh, in India, in India. And I, I think these farmers, you know, so farming, it's one of the interesting things I think about history we're also used to living a life where we get paid relatively, you know, steady paychecks. We forget how hard it was during the farming period to take you get all your resources at once and now you've got to somehow make them last. And anywhere in the world where people look at this what you actually find is they even call it the lean season. It's like the periods where y- you've kind of almost too quickly consumed what you earned at the end of harvest and now there's like very little left. And those periods are interesting to me because we weren't just priming. We're getting the same sugarcane farmer in this lean season. And then we study them right after they get their big payment, where now they're in this sort of flush season. So it's kind of a you know, a tragic circumstance that produces an experiment where we get the same person when they're poor and rich. Now, other things change. You, know, you have to make sure they're not eating differently, et cetera. But let's assume we've done that then you can really see what happens to their cognitive function in the month before and the month after. And that's where we sort of we we did a bunch of sort of psychological measures of this and I think one thing we we're hoping in doing the book and the thing is that to just get a lot more people studying this to just say look we study the consequences of being poor but we don't study the mental life of the poor and what poverty does to your inner life. So I I hope, you know, more people will start doing this. But what we found in that one study was that the same farmer is quite a bit smarter once they have cash in the bank than when they didn't have cash in the bank. And that difference, to be honest, when you're in the field, you really can tell the difference when you're talking to somebody. Like you talk to somebody during this lean season and there's sort of a, there's a little, I guess, I'd say glassy eyed to it. Um, they're bored i mean they were waiting for something to happen so they're not distracted cuz they've got fun other things going on but it's clear their mind is not fully there you know they're they're wor- they're, they're concerned about something and you talk to people after you know once they've taken care of the stuff with the money they need to and they're like they're like what you'd expect when someone is on and so you really see at least i think i see it when i talk to them
3: let me get you to talk about the other study, too. I love the, the farmer study is remarkable, and you're right that it's the stronger one. But, but the reason I also want you to mention the other one uh, is both, I think, if I remember correctly, it's domestic, but also because it's such a light priming. The, the lean season, full season is so big that I think it's easy for people to imagine, well, that's not generalizable, right? That's such a distinct life experience. But you show that you can, you, you can fire up a scarcity program in people incredibly easily,
2: yeah, that's right. So in that one, I think uh, Jia Ying Zhao, who's really uh, did that study. She, in that study, we did what she did was you have people at the mall, and they're going to do a simple task, and what you simply ask them. This is an example. Of one of the things is if you needed five hundred dollars, you know how would you get it, and you can imagine what this kind of does is it triggers a set of thoughts. So even though it seems like a problem, well, it's not really a problem, it's really an opening of a door to getting you to think about all the other things in your financial life. Now, the thing about primes like this is that I think they can be fragile, but when you get them working, then they're also serve the purpose of kind of just getting you running off and going and thinking. And that we found simply in a treatment group that got that then you have them do an IQ test and they're significantly worse. And I think you're right, both the studies together, I think they go together because the first one is big, the sugarcane one, this one is small. And for me, it's evocative of the fact, at least the experience I've had in life, um, where something someone says gets me suddenly going down this rabbit, You know, suddenly starts chasing down. Now, maybe that's not long lasting, but even for five minutes, that's a pretty big effect. And to get back to our the other part of our conversation, I think that's in part one of the reasons these things like looking at email or Twitter can sometimes be so problematic because one little prime, one little word can suddenly reawaken a worry that you'd kind of put to bed and suddenly now it's alive for five
3: minutes, 10 minutes. I think there's a very deep radicalism to the implications here. And, and listeners of this show who remember the Robert Sapolsky episode, that it also touches on this in a in a pretty important way. But let me try to articulate this. I think the way we justify the economic outcomes in our society is by saying that they reflect cognitive and behavioral inequality, right? They reflect that people, some people are just smarter than others are. Some people just work harder. And this suggests that the conditions people live in, the inequality in our society, is also creating the cognitive and behavioral differences that we observe. And that's a very different way of thinking about this. Yeah, and I think for me that
2: we have some evidence and if, and, and if more evidence accumulates on that, I, I agree with you. I think that is entirely radical and I think one way to think about it is, you know, we're all familiar with the idea that, hey, if you have money, it lets you start up a company like our current president uh, who had money to, to sort of take on. And we understand that wealth begets wealth through the means of production that allows you to acquire assets that may have higher return. But the idea that having wealth also begets human capital advantages, where you're just mentally free, where you're just much more capable of thinking without having all of this overhang. And that in turn leads to it. For me, I'm glad you see it radically because I thought that was radical as well. I think I'll give a concrete example. You go talk to uh, employers or managers of service workers like at a fast food chain they'll all complain about the same thing. They'll say, oh, my employees, they don't care. They show up late. When they're here, they do careless things. It's very easy to hear those narratives and be like, oh, well, I guess, quote, these people are just less capable. But it's also, given what we're talking about, easy to go back to that and say, wait a minute, maybe that's what everyone would be like if they had the overhang
3: of not not having enough. And you don't even need to believe that everyone would be all the same, right? There there clearly are differences in cognitive capacity. There clearly are differences in behavioral uh, tendencies. But you can believe this like (laughs) a bit and it it, it transforms everything quite radically. So let's say that I was, I, I wanted to like argue on behalf of capitalism here. The way I think you argue on behalf of capitalism in an age of high inequality is you say this. You say, look, it is true that the economic order that we have leads to wild inequality. But the reason it's good is that what it's doing is it is getting the people who have the most cognitive capacity, the most creativity, who are willing to work the hardest. And it is incentivizing them to do that in a way that then like helps everyone, in a way that then creates new innovations and creates a rising standard of living for everyone. And if the cost of that is that they do much better and some people do much worse and are, are are left way behind, that's fine. We don't want to tax them too much because the thing we're trying to draw out in them are, are these wonderful capacities that they have and other people don't. And you think, OK, like that makes some sense. But then you flip it under, under research like this and you say, well, what if actually by doing that we're making it impossible for the other people? to exhibit that kind of cognitive capacity and creativity and uh, ability to plan for the future. That instead of the way inequality is working is that it is pulling the best from people. It's actually keeping them from being their best. It is creating an entrenched cognitive inequality where the people at the top of the order have the space, I think you call it in the book, slack, to, to more fully use their capacities and the people who are down there at the bottom, who are struggling to make ends meet, who are struggling to run to the office where they have to apply for their food stamps and show they've put 80 hours in to try to find a job this month, like on and on and on, that we are actually making it harder for them to succeed. We're losing and limiting their cognitive capacity. And if that's what we're doing, if that's what high inequality capitalism does, is it actually keeps a bunch of people from doing their best. Well, that's a real different situation. That's a much less just system. And not only that, it's a system where we're probably losing a lot of great work and great innovations, not to mention just people living better lives uh, along the way.
2: Yeah, I like the way you have built that up because in a way, it's it says, let's just take the efficiency argument part of capitalism just for a bit. And let's exactly as you just said, you know, we would all understand Okay, for a capitalist system to work, if the idea is that you want to get the best and really ride them, then okay, first of all, we would understand why gender bias is terrible. Why would you want to take half the population out of the running? From a pure efficiency point of view, you know, you, if you want to get the best of a distribution, you want the biggest pool possible. So why did you do that? And then the things we're talking about says, and why would you want to take this whole other group of people and hamper them and make sure they're not able to be creative and take them out of the running. So in a way, I think this does have, even the efficiency argument about uh, uh, for capitalism, just efficiency, has, when combined with a bit of psychology, has a great deal of equity implications of why you would want you know, a lot more equity, or at the very least, raising of the bottom. It's not to say that you would care about the tail. So it's kind of different than inequality, which is top minus bottom. It's more about the bottom should be
3: very high, and everyone should get access to the race. There's another piece of it for me. So a lot of my background is in reporting on social policy. And we can talk about the governing economic system all day. But the thing that we, we change more often is how do social policies work? How, do, how does access to Medicaid or TANF work? And one of the, the very live fights happening right now is whether or not we should make it harder to access those floor policies how much documentation should you have to give to be on Medicaid or to get food stamps? How much should you have to prove that you're trying to find a job? How much should you have to prove that you're volunteering? Should you have to go in for drug tests semi-regularly to do it? Um, And there are a lot of states that just make it incredibly hard to access these benefits under the theory that either um, it will then mean that only the people who really need them get them or by pushing people towards work, it'll mean that people get work. But If you make everything really hard to do uh, and you put a lot of cognitive load on people who are already burdened by the the stress of just trying to make ends meet when they don't have enough to do it and don't have enough to feed their children and don't have transportation to get to their work every day, but also their work is not flexible in the way my work is flexible. So if they don't get there, they might lose their job. If you just keep stacking difficulty on top of them, you're not going to get better out of them. You're going to get worse. You're going to you're going to crush them under the scarcity of time and the scarcity of resources. And then we're gonna turn around, and this is the part that drives me crazy. We're gonna turn around and we're gonna judge them for that. We're gonna say, well, you didn't sign up, so you didn't really need it, or you didn't keep going to that job. And so this is really your fault. Um, I think one of the worst things that happens in politics, so much is created by people, so much of politics is uh policy is made by people who don't understand the lives of the people they're making policy about. And so they they create systems that might work for them, right? If you're the person kind of person who loves intermittent fasting and optimizing your schedule, well, maybe something like a work requirement makes a lot of sense to you, right? Rules based isn't that great, but that's not how it plays out if you stack this in every aspect of somebody's life, all on top of each other, and like that's something we really can change. The question of whether government um, is easy to access or hard, that's not like we got to get rid of all capitalism. <laughs> that's just we have to have a different attitude towards what will help people flourish. I couldn't agree more. There are
2: the, the, there are sort of a bunch of just in the weeds policy choices that I think we make pretty badly now. You listed one. Um, I'll give the most egregious version of this. I think the systems we have right now are incredibly fault intolerant. So you described one end of it where we actually are putting up barriers. But even when we're not putting up barriers, we're doing very little to make the system intolerant to the faults of individuals, to make the system tolerant to the faults of individuals. So an example I have is that um, if you join a community college, and you say you're working, maybe you're a first time community college goer, and you're gonna be doing a lot of other things, because you have to, to make ends meet. What's gonna happen is you're going to fall behind with some probability in your first year math class. That's going to happen. But the current structure of schedules means that if you've fallen behind, it's getting hard now to catch up. We don't ask ourselves, okay, how would I design a math curriculum in a big community college, recognizing that people are gonna fall behind? Because you have to understand that's just the nature of the ecosystem. You know, people got got these things going on there, these shocks that'll hit them. You would then say, hmm, I wonder if we should stagger our calculus courses and not start them all at the same time so that if someone falls behind, they can say, I'm going to step down to the class that's one week behind and I'm no, no, it'll take them a little longer to finish. That's fine. But you haven't made it impossible for them to finish. And in the social policy world, um, I often liken this to sort of aircraft um, heads up display or uh, design where what we learned in designing cockpits was that pilots will make mistakes and we need to make sure that we don't let those mistakes magnify into, into errors and, and crashes. We don't really have that attitude for all of the ecosystem we build around the social support system. We don't have the view of, okay, there are gonna be errors. How can we make sure they don't magnify? And it just shows up everywhere. If you get this attitude, I think you'll see in many, many places, small changes we can make that would have a big difference.
3: Something that is not well debated in politics is what are our theories of human nature and human behavior and human mind that are laddering up into our policymaking? And I think particularly around uh, policy for, for the poor and for people who are struggling, the implicit theory often whether or not it is articulated, though sometimes by people like, say, Paul Ryan, it is articulated, is that they don't want to work enough. So what we need to do is we need to make sure there's a floor in American life. You shouldn't fall to extreme poverty, though we do let that happen to people. But the the issue here is that people are not trying hard enough to find a job, that, that they're not incentivized enough to get out of the government, quote, hammock and back into the workforce. And so what we're trying to do is give them that push, give them some resources, but also give them that push. And it would be really different if what you said was what we are trying to do is give people who may not currently have the mental space and like scheduling ability to plan and to think and to to just like step back and make the best decisions for them and their family. And we're trying to give them a little bit more of that space, like take some of the pressure off so they can do that long range work. Um, That a lot of the rest of us are able to do, or by the way, are able to outsource to others, um, which often happens. Uh, If you decided that you wanted to construct social policy to do that, you'd build something very different. I mean, this is where I actually get into things like universal basic income, which I I don't like as a policy on all measures, but I I do think a lot about it as a policy in which you might just want to say, we just don't want to make this hard. We just want to make sure everybody has a space to. Just like do the basic planning for their life without having to worry excessively about making ends meet, and if you do that, um, if if that was your view of human nature, you would just design things very differently. And it really does seem to me that if you look at modern behavioral economics, you look at modern neuroscientists, you look at modern psychological research, that that is what you see. That sure, there are people who maybe can need a kick to get to work, but if they need that, if 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 being poor is not enough of a disincentive. <laughs> Um, then just restructuring social programs is not going to get you that much. Um, The bigger problem with poverty is not that people want to be in it and don't want to leave it. It's that it makes it hard for people to leave it. They get trapped in it. And that isn't something you, you get them out of by motivation. Being poor sucks. It's something you help people out of by giving them the space to do what is a very, very arduous climb. And you'll notice something I,
2: I like the I totally like several things you said, and you'll and just pick up on the last thing you said, you, you'll notice something in the in that sort of worldview, the push worldview, the poor need to be pushed. I don't think it's a coincidence that in that worldview, there's also a, a spreading of the idea that, you know, actually the poor have it good, you know, in the sense that, oh, they live off of benefits, and there's also this other, like being poor is really hard and not that pleasant but the world view that pushes that oh pushes the idea that the poor need to be pushed out it also pushes the idea that there's a lot of gaming of benefits and you know you can have many children and get lots of stuff from medicaid and so there's almost this like dual thing where you kind of give the idea that government is wasteful cuz it's making the lives very good and it's making the poor very complacent and so you have this like i think quite faulty view that like the poor are there almost because they kind of wanna be there and you need to shove them up. And I'll pick up on another thing you said about universal basic income. I'm also trying to figure out what I think about it, but I love the earlier point you made that, you know, we can debate big picture policy because it's kind of interesting to talk about these big ideas, but there's so much to be done in the minutia that could be transformative. Like, here's an example. Being low income in the United States today means being on an hourly job that with very good odds, your hours change from week to week and you might not know except the week before what your hours the next week is going to be like. That's crazy. Picture trying to plan anything about your life and picture not knowing how many hours you're going to, I don't know if you ever watched Superstore, but this is such an interesting show to watch. But one of the central tensions in that store is like, oh, in one of these episodes is our hours are being cut. We have fewer hours. Just picture having that kind of volatility in your life. How many dollars? When? Now, is this big social policy? No, but it would be the most minor change in labor laws to move to a country where we had a little bit more regulation on what you could do on that front and at what frequency. Is it gonna hurt the bottom line of retail businesses, et
3: cetera? A little bit, sure. I cannot agree with this more. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And it's cruel. It's cruel, that's exactly right, it's cruel. It's cruel, and again, it's a weird implicit view of what we want to, of, of what we're worried about, right? That we're worried about the scheduling freedom of Walmart or something as opposed to – you just mentioned the uh, ability to plan your working. I would just note because it's embedded in what you said. It's also the ability to be a parent, right? The difficulty of being a parent when you don't know when you'll be at work and when you'll be able to pick up your child – I mean, we as a society, given what we say about ourselves, should care a little bit more about parenting and family values and to make that than, than to let that be the way things work. Right.
2: And I think that's where I, I really resonate with your point. This is at the level of detail, not big policy. You know, the minimum wage is a dollar figure. And so we can at least get some rallying around it. This is pretty detailed. And I think it goes back to something you said much earlier, which is what is it the people who engage in these conversations, how do they understand the day-to-day lives of the people they're gonna influence? If you went and talked to anybody working in one of these hourly jobs and asked, what, is, you know, what are your big frustrations in life? This would be near the top of the list. I mean, I'm not saying it's be number one, but it's gonna be pretty high up. If you go to people, well-meaning people, who say, I wanna help the poor, this probably doesn't rise to the top of their list because it's it's you have to live that life or know about it or read about it to really get a sense of it. And I think there are big gains to be had on these type of policies, these type of very on the ground, what is affecting people policies.
3: So something from there that that I want to talk about is what happens to children growing up amidst this kind of scarcity? Not just uh, the scarcity their parents are experiencing, but that they may be experiencing. What happens to them in school? What happens to, you know, we look at kids' GPAs or their SATs and we think, well, like that was equal. Everybody got to go to school. But how is it different using your cognitive capacity as a kid in these environments versus being in an environment where you don't have to worry about any of this stuff and the people around you are not worrying as much. Yeah,
2: I can tell you a personal story. And then I I will say that I think the evidence on this is only starting to accumulate. So I don't, but I'll tell you the story. When I was a kid, uh, my dad lost his job. And I remember we went to the grocery store and he was unemployed. We didn't have much money and I. I remember wanting to buy a bag of cookies. And I was like, until then we just like, oh, I want this, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, oh, we can't afford that. It's like 99 cents. And I was like, that was kind of odd. And then I was like, what's going on? And it was like the first kind of intrusion of money, really in a deep sense into my thinking. Like I'd been in India before that point, but I was I was much younger. But this is like, I was like, nine or 10. And the idea that, oh my God, like, wait, what happens if we don't have enough money? So I said, wait, if you don't if you don't get another job, what happens to us? You know, like I, was, I assumed the answer was somebody will make sure we're okay. And uh, my dad's answer was basically, well, we're screwed. Uh, he didn't say that, but you know, I think that's how I remember it. And from then on, he ended up at a, uh, they ended up, my parents ended up opening a video store. And As a kid, having to think about money and having to recognize that there is this thing out there and things could go very badly, it's remarkably unsettling. And I've talked to people who've grown up in well-off circumstances. It's not like they don't know money doesn't exist, obviously, you know, they get an allowance, they get stuff. But there's something that happens when you have the recognition that you're not growing up in this sort of secure environment, things are fragile things can fall apart. Luckily, I've we and things didn't fall apart for us. So things were great. I can only imagine for the many kids for whom things do fall apart. The, the 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 parents get evicted and then you go, now you get into another home. I mean, I it must be this constant concern just tripping at the outside of one's mind and I could not imagine doing fractions and practice problems with any level of concentration when you've got that running around in your head.
3: There's another piece of this that, so I've been reading for the obvious reasons, a lot of parenting books recently, and, and you get a lot of these, the the place where there's a lot of research that I think is related here is around attachment and an early childhood attachment, something you make the point of in the book. We've been talking about scarcity primarily as it relates to money, but it can relate to time, it can relate to food. And certainly, in theory, particularly if you're young and this is the primary thing happening in life, you can relate to care. And for kids who don't have reliable access to, to nurturing caregivers, it changes their whole development. And so you can imagine this both in terms of their parents can't be around because you know there's only one of them and she has to work two jobs to keep the family together, but also, of course, there are kids who are just in families where they don't get the kind of care we wish kids got, and that. That kind, of, that kind of scarcity to secure attachment, um, one, we know it changes sort of everything about the way they attach to people later. Uh, and it's particularly true when this happens very, very early in life. But I just wonder um, what, what it must be. I mean, I was lucky to have two parents who loved me and were around. And I just wonder what it's like to um, go through you know early life not feeling secure that people are around for you um when that is like the the fundamental thing that a child needs to feel secure it i I don't know what else it affects but i would imagine actually that literature is of some relevance here absolutely i mean imagine school lets out
2: and your mom or dad said they'll pick you up and you're like waiting on the curb for like an hour and they finally come now if you're old enough you might be able to make sense of their explanation that like, you know, this and this happened and their boss said, you can't go home until this is fixed and blah, 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 blah. Maybe, you know, but when you're nine or eight, like whatever they say, how that feels is a feeling of abandonment. And so we talked about, you know, how scarcity can create certain kinds of unreliability in, in at work, but once time gets mixed up and once there's a lot on your plate, it's got to create similar things that I, I just, you know, the way that, Children must feel that. I like your attachment point. Must be must be the feeling that maybe this person doesn't care about me.
3: One of the ways in which I think this really hits a lot of things going on in 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 the way we judge society. I think that's like the thing I keep coming back to: the way we judge society, the way we judge people and their outcomes, and then assume that they're getting their just desserts. Is that if you buy all this literature, well, then the fundamental bedrock upon which so much is built, which is personal responsibility. And then the idea that the individual choices we make sort of represent a like a virtue measure that, um, well, they didn't make the choices this person made. And so they deserve blame that this person didn't get and or they didn't make the good decisions this person made or didn't come up with the ideas or didn't score on the test or whatever it might have been. And I feel like a lot of this research, it doesn't take all free will and all personal responsibility out of the picture but it does suggest that it's a it's a, it's a much more tenuous link between those things and 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 what we actually do than than we like to admit that that we with our same genetic makeup and 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 so much else the same might have made very different decisions under conditions of scarcity might have made very different decisions under conditions of extreme stress might have made very different decisions if the opportunities we had had were much narrowed because we'd grown up in an area that, and then we hadn't gotten the education that, and we hadn't met the teacher who, and so on. And this is one of these places where I recognize why you need to build a society at least to some degree based on judgment. But it seems to me that the more you read literature in this space, the more it just wrecks the idea that you can actually build that much of society based on um, these confident judgments. Even people who are making what we would consider bad decisions, you know the conditions under which they came to those decisions and the conditions under which like their cognitive capacities develop and operate can be really, can be so different that putting everybody on the same line is just a mistake. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the
2: things that you're highlighting, I might almost highlight with another question. I often ask this of people, it's weird that when we turn into this judgment mode of others, we, we sort of apply a set of heuristics that when the tables are turned, we really wouldn't apply to ourselves. Like, if you look at anyone and ask them, how do you think about your life and the times you've screwed up? Most people will say, sure, there were times I definitely screwed up where I didn't work hard enough and I knew I made these mistakes. So that's always there. Some notion of responsibility, and you know, that's always there. But there are plenty of times when it was just a screw up, I don't know what happened. Or I had a lot on my plate and I, and the fact that in our own lives, everybody has this mix, but yet when we go to judge other people, especially the poor, we're not allowing them the same mix. And I actually think they probably have more of one is I think just, just crazy. I think it's just sort of a, a, a failure to introspect even.
3: There's a failure to introspect and then there is the seduction of our own stories. So the people who are, let me, I'll I'll offer a story of my own here. So when I was younger, when I was in, um, you know, junior high and high school, I sort of, I began doing badly in school at about seventh grade. And why exactly this happened, I, I don't have a perfect answer for even now, but but I began doing pretty badly in school. And I don't mean like, oh, like I got an A's, but now I got B's. I mean, I was failing things and getting D's and getting not in trouble, but, you know, I weighed 50 pounds more than I do now. And I didn't really have friends and things just weren't going well. And they didn't go well for some time. Um, I was a good standardized test taker. That was about it. And I graduated from high school with a 2.2 average. So, you know, not nothing, but it was not a good GPA. Then later on, I went to college, um, which I, you know, because I did, you know, well enough on my testing to, to get into UC Santa Cruz. And then I, um, you know, got into blogging and then journalism and did really well. And for a long time, I had this, not a narrative that I applied politically, but it's a narrative that I applied to my own life that just like, you know, if you could just find the way to get the discipline, I became really disciplined later on. And it took a long time. Um, it was actually a, a therapist who was like, you just have a very classic presentation of a certain kind of learning disability where you can't listen to people lecture, which is more or less what had happened in school. I couldn't listen during the day. And I think now I'd just be diagnosed with something. But, And it really changed my own mind that it, it, I didn't have this story of triumph. I had a story of changing context. I did very poorly when one kind of learning was asked of me, and I did very well when another kind of learning was sort of my own, just like going down rat holes on the internet and writing about them. Turns out I'm very good at that. And that was a real shock for me. Um, And it really kind of bred into me this idea that people just can do very differently depending on the circumstances in which they're in. But the thing is, the, the thing I want to say about that is not my ultimate lesson, but the one I sort of had taken before that, which is, given that things had turned around, it was easy for me to believe uh, a narrative in which they always would have, so long as I had been able to like, summon the personal discipline inside myself. And I think a lot of the people who end up making these decisions. It's not that they've never failed, to your point, but if they're making the decisions, they ultimately succeeded. And having ultimately succeeded, so at least in some set of measures, it becomes very easy to tell yourself a story of, if I could do it, then anybody can do it. They just need to be pushed. Yeah, success has this sort of intoxicating element. I I can't improve on your story. I mean,
2: that's perfect. I think I had a similar experience where when I first started being successful in academia, I started to get this sense that I think a lot of successful people have, which is some notion of the inevitability of their success. Like, oh, I'm successful because I'm good, which is crazy, but you could feel the allure of it and I could feel the allure of it. And, you know, I'm sure I went down that path for a little bit. But I think that's at the heart of, ex- of what you're saying is we tell ourselves these stories. And then if you say, well, I'm, I'm successful because I'm good, then the converse of that is, well, this person is not successful. Well, you can read between the lines. And I think that I think you're right. I think mean, that plays such a big role.
3: Yeah. And everything in our society pushes us to read between those lines. But now let me complicate this story, uh, I guess, even a bit more. Something you do quite a bit in the book is you compare scarcity of money to scarcity of time, that that you suggest that the the feeling of not having enough time, it creates a similar sense of distraction, of concern, of reduced cognitive bandwidth to to, to not having enough money. And yet, when we think about the people who are super busy, we often think about them as very high performers. So if there is this high cognitive cost to being overscheduled, to not having enough time, then why do so many people who are paying it seem to be at the top of the the, the economic ranks.
2: Yeah, I can I, let me pause for one minute and just kinda even uh, s- since we're at this type of discussion, walk through why we even did the whole time thing. I mean, I'm interested in poverty, I'm interested in social policy, all those issues. Part of the reason we did the time thing was an attempt at exactly this rhetorical activity. How do you get somebody who's successful to not just understand these ideas at an abstract level, but at a level that personally resonates with them. like How do you try to help them see in their own experience the shadow of this one, of what the poor feel? Now, the downside of that is what you now kind of have highlighted, which is the effects of time are presumably a lot smaller than the effects of money so you wouldn't want to imply that you've captured the magnitude of the thing, just the qualitative nature of the thing. And I think that's that's what in effect happens. You know, people at the top, yes, they're busy. Everyone else is really quite busy. They all experience many versions of all of this. But if you're 20% less productive than you could be if you did a good job of managing these issues, it's not going to kick you all the way to the bottom, you know, you're just slightly less effective. And maybe the most effective executives don't have this, but most people have it to a degree. So the effects are smaller. I think we did most all of that in an effect to sort of help people understand at a personal level rather than sort of see this at a abstract level. How
3: much is scarcity thinking, do you think it is affected by control? One thing about being overscheduled, which I've often been overscheduled, scheduled, is it can feel really out of your control, but fundamentally it isn't. And if things get too bad, you make changes in your calendar or you begin to pull back from things. And even to, to your point that scarcity is a perceptual phenomenon, I've noticed that my schedule can be more or less the same, but the more I feel I have control over it, maybe I'm implementing some new thing about how I calendar, uh, it, I can calm down about it versus something like poverty or a bunch of other things we might be able to think of where it is being imposed unpredictably by external forces or even if we're talking about time there's a real difference to i have overscheduled myself to my work is scheduling me in a crazy way uh to go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with that kind of on demand scheduling so how much is how much does control one's own control enter into this
2: yeah and this is now i'm going to move from wor- things we've done to sort of speculation because i think i think you're onto something I- there's a literature on helplessness and learned helplessness. And there's sort of speculation that one thing that poverty does, for example, because it takes so much out of your control, is put you into a mindset of somewhat feeling helpless. And so I think that element of it must be playing a pretty big part. And we, we've we only scratched the surface of that bit. I think there's so much more to be understood exactly because it's it's not simply the the negative feelings that come when you're not in control, but the feedback that that produces of your sense of control and your sense of agency. I mean, I bet you and I feel pretty much agency in many of the contexts we're in. Like we can do things and stuff will happen, but that's really not a feeling that's intrinsic. It's a feeling because of the context we've been in. I mean, lack of control has a feedback effect, which is it also changes your sense of agency in any context you go to. And I think that's another very big knock on effect. I think uh, being well off gives you a sense of agency in so many situations that you can go in and do things and stuff will happen. But if you look at the feedback that a lot of people in poor circumstances have, it's that they can do stuff and nothing will happen. You know, the world will act as it will. And that reduction in sense of agency has got to change how you approach lots of things.
3: Oh, I think that's totally true. That is something. It's funny. I, I did this conversation with Robert Sapolsky, the, the neuroscientist, a couple months ago, and that really came up. One thing I was think about there is you see it and you see that a lot in epidemiological data. So I want to say that the famous study here is called the Whitehall study, uh, but I could have that wrong by memory. But it's this big study of people in the British civil service. And it was trying to look at the effect of stress on life outcomes. And I'm sorry because I'm doing this from memory, so I might get pieces of it a little distorted. But what it found was that it wasn't the stress, but but stress that came with a sense of powerlessness. It was really bad for you. If you were stressed, but you had control, right? You were like the head of the agency. That's fine. Being stressed, being subject to the whims of others, having like a lot on your plate, but not a lot of power to deal with it that was terrible for you it's like really bad to be a middle manager you showed really bad uh, uh, outcomes on heart disease and, and and a bunch of other things that that feeling of agency seems really important to to psychological flourishing and and to your point to to then um you know the kinds of decisions people make the kind of cognitive leaps they'll do it's hard to imagine for all of our valorization of innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship it's hard to make some of these risky jumps if you don't feel like risk has been rewarded in your own life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I was in, I think it was Spain, and I went to a restaurant to eat. And it struck me how different the waiters and waitresses are in most parts of Europe. Like they have an enormous sense of agency. They, It's clear that you're coming to eat in their establishment. But think in the US of what the service sector even looks like. The service sector, the customer is king, and you work at a restaurant, and it's like you're supposed to be, for lack of a better word, servile. And much of our economic structures have this odd thing of trying to deprive people of a sense of agency, uh, especially if you're not near the top of the organization. And I think that your your rendition of the Whitehall study, that's how I remember it too, and I think it's very striking. And I think it's something that we have not yet really thought about, which is in a job, how much are we giving people a sense of agency and how transformative is it to have an economic system that gives people a sense of agency versus
3: one that doesn't. So we've talked about the big social policy and and capitalism dimensions of this, but I actually want to circle back a little bit to where we were at the beginning, because your book, it opens with you being under a sense of time scarcity. And sort of your in your interrogation here being motivated by a recognition that this is playing out in your own life and that your own thinking is is changing under this feeling that you never have enough time to do the things you want to do and that you're becoming more short term and you're tunneling and, and all the rest of it. So having done all this work, how do you design your life to manage the feeling of scarcity? Like how, how is how has this framework changed the way you operate? I think,
2: I think one thing it's totally changed my entire thinking is that it's changed my thinking from one in which what I was doing was managing time or some other scarce resource into thinking what I'm really in the business of managing is my bandwidth. Now, I'm not saying I'm doing a good job of that yet. I'm certainly doing a better job than five years ago. But once you realize that's the scarce commodity... And then you start to understand some of the structure of it, like we started the conversation talking about, like, you know, small primes, like one email or tweet is actually a pretty big bandwidth tax that casts a shadow. Then you start asking yourself, how am I allocating my bandwidth? You don't ask yourself, what time are you giving a particular activity? You ask, what bandwidth are you giving an activity? So if I schedule something for an hour, that's fine. But is it high bandwidth hour or low bandwidth hour? And I've found, for example, even trying to understand when my bandwidth is high, when is it low? I'm sure it'll differ for each person. But recognizing that has changed when I do things and what I do when and how much. And I think that's been the biggest
3: change. So what are some very specific things you do to, to manage bandwidth? Because that, that, that's like an interesting, that's an interesting way to order, order your world.
2: Yeah. An example of that is an extended version of the thing we talked about. I, I used to get up in the morning and check email. You know, because the phone is right there. I just pick up my phone. I just look. And I found that if I don't do that, don't check email until I'm done with the shower and the gym, that whole one hour period is a period of very high bandwidth that gives me enormous creativity and reflection on a bunch of things. Whereas if I check email first thing, well, that's it. My mind is now going to go to all those little things, the tactical, the whatever, and that small change of like is actually allowed me to create a ton of bandwidth effectively without really losing much productivity because
3: I wasn't doing that much on the tactical stuff while making coffee, et cetera. Has it changed how much you actually schedule yourself? I mean, has it literally changed your approach to time?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I. here's an example of change time. I, I view a big block of four hours as priceless, whereas that is not the same as four one hour blocks. And the fact that there's this sort of, you can't paste things together across in time, totally changed. So for example, I've now tried to create whole days that are completely free. And that's hard because it requires you sticking to your guns. But if you don't do that, there's just some activities that you cannot do because some things just require a couple of hours to get into and a couple of hours before you're even doing a halfway good job. And so I I think thinking of time, in terms of minimum viable blocks and that they have very different productive units in the scales that come has made a big difference.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do, but when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at Greenlight.com slash gray area. That's Greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
3: All right, I'm going to take a turn in the conversation here uh, because you've been doing more recently work on artificial intelligence. And I moved out to the Bay Area about, I don't know, like eight months ago now. And the single thing that is most different about the intellectual world out here is pretty often I just run into people who their attitude is nothing like going on right now matters at all compared to AI. The next like 15 to 30 years the development of self-improving artificial intelligence is gonna be so profound that it's gonna change everything. And, and almost everything else we talk about is a sideshow. So you're an economist, and you study AI, and you study machine learning, and you're teaching a course on it. I'm curious how different you think life is gonna be 25 years from now because of the rise of, of artificial intelligence, whether it's in its general kind of form as a like a, an entity or just in terms of machine learning, integrating into everything in our economy? I think it's going to be enormously transformative.
2: I think it's going to be at least as transformative as the web and thereby social media has been. And, and that's been pretty big to our world. Um, I think it's going to be an enormous enabling mechanism. So I'm, I'm pretty bear, uh, bullish. But I think for me, what's interesting about this technology is not the linear story people tell. Oh, this will be smart machines, et cetera. It's a very specific technology which has specific strengths and specific weaknesses. So to me, I think it's going to be an amazing period where we're going to find out the ways in which it changes the world and it will be nothing like we imagine right now. I don't think anybody imagining the rise of the web in 1993 could have envisioned the consequences it had for democracy and fake news. And, you know, the first order implications these technologies have had are hard to envision exactly because they torque things so much. And I think AI is even more so, but I think because it has this word intelligence in it, people say, oh, I can imagine what this is going to be like. It's going to be like a machine that's smart like people, but smarter, you know, but that that isn't really what these technologies have currently the capacity to do. So I'm actually interested in seeing how will things change uh, and how dramatically and in what way.
3: What are the weaknesses? I think people talk a lot about the possible strengths, but, but, but what are the weaknesses and, and will those weaknesses actually be persistent?
2: I think that one of the things when you go into the, the way, that, let's just demark the conversation. I think a lot of AI conversations have the following feature. Sure, sure, that's the way things are now, but, but, but imagine. So let's not imagine. I mean, we had a long period from 1960 to be working on this technology, and we've had a really big breakthrough in the last 15 years. And so maybe there'll be a different kind of breakthrough that no one was expecting. But given the technology we have right now, and the sort of expected progress in it, some of the weaknesses are, you know, algorithms are only as good as the data they're trained on. You know, that, it's not a general intelligence object. It's just whatever you can train it on. Now, sometimes people imagine that means they can't do that much, but they can do a lot. They can do an enormous amount you can't imagine, but they can only do as well. So for example, um, to find a, a cure for cancer, well, how do you turn that into a problem with data that you can tackle? That requires a ton of human ingenuity. I'm not sure it can be done, but maybe it can. And so in some sense, these algorithms are very data locked and they're not going to be able to do much more than that unless there are some major breakthroughs that no one is seeing right now
3: well this is the question that i that i often have and i have this argument with people out here all the time uh, i shouldn't call it an argument this is my this is my note of skepticism this is a place like the bay area specifically in the tech world very specifically that is very impressed by analytical intelligence and if you're working in software. The limits of your software are to a first approximation, like the like the limits of computing power, but 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 also the limits of like what you can think of to do and 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 how well you can program. And it seems to me that a lot of the problems in life are not limited necessarily by ideas, like renewable energy. Um, there's in some ways in which it is limited. It, it's like energy. There's some way in which it is limited by ideas, but more to the point, it's limited by how much stuff can we pull out of the ground. And then, like, what can we figure out how to do that we haven't figured out how to do in the in the renewable space? And that requires experimenting on a lot of physical matter. Um, and then to actually deploy any of that, because we do have better th- things than we often use right now, that's a huge amount of will and money and resources and, and and mobilizing people. And similarly, in the medical space, it seems to me that a huge amount of what stops us from moving forward faster there is the ability to find new compounds and then actually run the trials and then like get humans and getting humans is expensive. But if you don't get humans to run the trials on, you can't figure out what the thing does. The reply I get is that, you know, if you had enough analytical horsepower and data, you could do more to understand the basic science at work in all this and you could become much more targeted about what you did. But I'm I'm curious where where you fall on that. Like how much of the constraint in our lives right now is that we don't have enough good ideas or good information versus how much is it that it's really hard to turn good ideas and good information into actual progress?
2: I mean, I am definitely a believer like you in, in the second one. It, you know, good ideas alone aren't going to get anywhere. I think what these tools promise is because there's such different ways of attacking problems is that they promise us the potential to take problems that currently look like implementation get it out problems, and not all of them, but for a few of them, actually turn them into an ideas problem. Like, you know, if I were to pick up the fact that you, I like your example with compounds, you know, you do compounds, at the end of the day, you got to run a clinical trial to see if it worked, and that's going to take a ton of time. And that is just energy and effort and dollars. So, that one is a great one. But you could imagine some human creativity combined with machine learning to say, actually, I found a way to turn the hit rate of clinical trials from 20%. I don't even know if it's that high right now, but 20% to 70%. That would be a massive change in how pharma operated. Now, how could such a technology work? It could work by, for example, taking the set of compounds that have succeeded and the set of compounds that have failed and Again, I'm not saying I know how to do this, but in principle, someone could have a very creative idea of taking all of that existing data and saying, I can form a prediction problem from this from which an algorithm could get us a better guess of what new compounds might work. Now, you'll notice this algorithm doesn't need to be great. It just needs to give us a modestly better guess, and that would already be transformative. And I think that's what I mean because I, by these technologies kind of changing things and not in ways we expect, it's it has the potential to kind of disrupt the ways we think about certain problems and I think that's why
3: it'll be very different their impacts than we currently imagine. Thinking again 30 years in the future. So something that I do in my work is that I read a lot of academic literature, you know, your work, but but let's say in my political journalism, I read a lot more political science than than most of my competitors do. And so something I'm going to do this week or next week is I'm going to write a big piece about Joe Biden's view of compromising with Republicans and what the kind of state of political science can tell us about that view. Now, a, an AI could read a whole lot more political science than I can. It could, it could read it all like in a second. And it they're getting a lot better at being able to generate text, you know, in response to a question or in response to a training algorithm that is you know, something close to readable. Uh, So in 30 years, can I ask the AI to write a political science inflected piece on why it will be hard for Joe Biden to bring back the compromise oriented politics of the 1980s and it can do a better job than I can?
2: I don't think that we're going to get to that point because if you think about it, everything about the Joe Biden example is, it's very specific. It's kind of N of one like problems. And what you're using is you're using your your own latent intellect to sort of make a statement about this N of 1. On the other hand, in your activity, you could imagine whole pieces of it being totally transformed. Like, how do you currently go about hoovering in all the relevant technology? I could even imagine once you laid out the core structure of your argument, who actually writes the long-form essay may not just be you, but maybe a big part AI and a big part you know, a small part, you, you know, for example, you don't do your spell checking anymore. You don't do your grammar checking anymore. And so it's not clear that style and all of those elements are necessarily going to be in your purview. Um, and so I think what makes it interesting is the full automation of that task seems just not, I don't even know how you do it because the key is that you're producing an N of one. But there's so many pieces of that task which could be have been automated, which would then totally change your task. Most of your time would not go towards, say, the writing or the trawling piece because something else is letting you trawl much more efficiently for insights. And then what would your job be? I think that's what makes the whole problem kind of interesting.
3: So then are you a believer in the the coming AI job apocalypse? No, no. I, I think that like, like all economists, I think that
2: every technology which appears to get rid of jobs has also created whole new jobs. And I don't see how that, I don't see why that changes here. You know, it's just, it gets rid of certain jobs that we don't need to do. And now we can do much more efficiently, opening up new jobs we can't even imagine. I have this, do you watch Star Trek? Have you ever seen Star Trek?
3: I have, I have indeed seen Star Trek. How did you know?
2: <laughs> well, I'm also a Star Trek fan. So I was watching Star Trek a couple of years ago and I was thinking, isn't it funny that these guys, when imagining their future, they were willing to bend the rules of all these technologies. There's like, oh, we can fast travel faster than the speed of light. But yet when they went to do the enterprise, they couldn't even imagine a self-driving enterprise. They still had two guys sitting there looking through a windshield piloting it. And so it just shows you that it's much easier to imagine what jobs are deleted than what jobs are created. If you could imagine what jobs are going to be created, you'd be an entrepreneur and start that business. And so I think one reason every new disruptive technology makes people feel you know, it's a job copulist, or I don't even know how to say it. It makes them feel that way because they can so easily see the jobs that might be killed, and they can't imagine the ones
3: that are going to be started. There's, um, so I, I'm not the one who did this, but somebody did a look at what Star Trek was on track to getting right and wrong. Because we're not, I think Star Trek, if I'm not misremembering this, it's something like it's in 2050 or something. It's not so far in the future that you can't imagine it. right. And you know, they make the point, as you say, that, you know, traveling at Warp Five and interstellar space travel and all that, we're not we're not doing any of it. On the other hand, their little transponders yeah, are yeah. garbage compared to an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like that, that's the thing they couldn't imagine that we yeah. would have like live exactly. video on our on our phones. Exactly. Which is a funny thing to not make the jump on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's and that's what I mean. The the shows are full
2: of those things. It's amazing. And I think it's it's hard to know what is the new thing. And People are so remarkably unhumble in the presence of the future. It's hard.
3: No one's good at predicting the future. It's crazy
2: to think anyone can.
3: That's probably actually a good place to, to, to bring things to a close. I've enjoyed this so immensely. So we always ask at the end, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? And so I, I pose that to you. Uh, good. So I would say, um, and this has been super fun. Thank you for this. Uh, I'd
2: say 100 uh, Years of Solitude, amazing, amazing novel full of wonder and really inspired creativity. Another one that I really liked is Where Good Ideas Come From. Just an awesome book. I mean, I love thinking about thinking and it's just a great book of, that really gives you a historical by sense. By Stephen of, Johnson. Yeah, by Stephen Johnson. Yeah, great book. Yeah, that's a great book. Isn't that amazing? And then the final book um, is Man's Search for Meaning, a more contemplative book uh, about someone who uh, lived through the Holocaust, a psychologist. And I found that book just so meaningful about just thinking about my own life.
3: Sandeel Mullinathan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the show. Thank you to Sandeel Mullinathan uh, for being here. I That's one of those conversations that could have been two or three or four times as long, and, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to come back to it. Um, something I noted there at the end, I want to, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this exactly yet, but I do want to do some more work on the show exploring artificial intelligence and deciding a little bit more for myself. Is this something that it's going to change everything? And so we need to be talking about it much, much more than we are, or is it a little bit overhyped? So if there's something you've read or somebody you've listened to that you just think is great on this, I, I know sort of the basic figures in the field, your Nick Bostroms and so on, but but a little bit uh, beneath that level, uh, I would be appreciative for the recommendations. Uh, that can be at Show at Vox.com. Uh, thank you, of course, to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show. It's a Vox Media podcast production.